Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Hey man, brothers and sisters, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, <coughs> chapter 7. We'll be looking at verses 11 through 19 <coughs> this evening. In Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 19. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy word. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if, in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord once again in prayer. Father, how we do pray that you would show us our great need to have a priest who serves according to the, uh, to the order of Melchizedek, who serves as one appointed according to the power of indestructible life. Help us to see that this priest is your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to stand firmly on these truths, O God, that our hearts might be encouraged, that our faith might grow, that we might honor you in all that we do. Father, we do pray that you would do this work by your spirit through the preaching of your word. For Lord, we, we do know that this is the way. This is the way that you work. This is the way that you grow us, the way that you open up our eyes. It is your spirit working through the preaching of the word. And therefore, Lord, we, we do ask that this work would be done to the praise and glory of your name. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. One of the things that's very important to see as you think about reading the Old Testament is to see that the Old Testament speaks of Christ directly and in its own right. That is to say that the Old Testament is inherently pointing forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. There are some today who will say that the Old Testament uh, really only points to Christ after the New Testament comes and the New Testament can give us an interpretation that no one else could ever have gotten to uh, in the Old Testament time. So they, they say that the Old Testament points to Christ, but only um, retrospectively, only if you're looking back from the, from the New Testament. But the problem with this is that the apostles everywhere understand Christ to be the Messiah who was already promised. This is something that is assumed throughout the New Testament. 
It is assumed that certain texts speak directly of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is even uh, the case that there are some texts, as we think of even the way in which Christ uses Psalm 110, which has been used uh, by the author to the, uh, to the Hebrews a number of times and is being used here for the, the theology of the order of Christ being a precept of the order of Melchizedek, that Christ assumes that Psalm 110 speaks of the Messiah. The Pharisees, when he's speaking to them in Matthew chapter 22, don't even challenge it. They recognize that the Old Testament is pointing forward to the Messiah, that there are, in fact, many, many passages that speak uh, directly of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Old Testament speaks directly of Christ, but it doesn't just speak of what the Messiah would do. It also tells us how you are to recognize which person is in fact the Messiah. It teaches us how to identify him. So some, there are some of the things that would, be, that would be very clear from the Old Testament witness to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the Messiah in, in general. First, we would know that he would be a prophet, a priest, and a king. Many, many texts would teach us this. We know he'd be from the tribe of Judah, as Genesis 49.10 says, and even more, uh, particularly a son of David from 2 Samuel 7, and even more, uh, born in Bethlehem from Micah chapter 5. All these markers were to help the saints understand not only what to expect from the Messiah in terms of what he would do, but also to recognize when the Messiah comes, who he is, to be able to identify rightly who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And you'll remember that this is actually part of the controversy that's, that happens in the New Testament. John records in John chapter 7, uh, verse 40 and following, that there are some people who don't think that Jesus could possibly be the Christ because they say, well, you know, the scriptures clearly teach that the Messiah is going to come out of Bethlehem, but this man comes out of Galilee. Galilee is not Bethlehem, therefore this person cannot be the Lord Jesus Christ. And what they did not realize was that Christ had moved to Galilee, having been born originally in Bethlehem. So he was in fact born in Bethlehem. And even him coming from Galilee is to fulfill another prophecy from Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, all these things are meant to, to say that the scriptures teach us what the Messiah would do. They teach us how to identify him. They then record even the way in which Christ fulfills all these things and even explain to us that this in fact happened. All this is part of the testimony that the scriptures give to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the point is this. If a person arises doing all the things that are described uh, in the scriptures that the Messiah would do, and if he's of the seed of David, born in Bethlehem of the tribe of Judah, then this, all of this would prove that the Lord Jesus Christ is in fact the Messiah. And that's really what we have here in this text in verses 11 through, through 19 uh, of Hebrews chapter 7. Here the author is continuing to speak about Christ being a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And he doesn't just want to show that, that Christ does certain things that the Messiah would do. He's also trying to show that everything about Christ tells us. It's, it's useful for identifying him as the priest after the order of Melchizedek. He is the only one who can fit this description. Now, I know it's been some time since we looked at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 7, but you remember... I may, uh, several weeks ago, I think uh, four or five weeks ago, when we looked at Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 to 10, there was this description of Melchizedek himself. So the way that the author is describing for us the significance of Christ being a priest at the order of Melchizedek is he first compares, in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 7, he compares Melchizedek himself to the Levites. And he shows that 
Melchizedek is far greater than the Levites because Melchizedek is greater than Abraham and Abraham is greater than the Levites. Therefore, Melchizedek is greater than the Levites. Therefore, any priest who comes after the order of Melchizedek must be greater than all the Levites. Now, in verses 11 through 19, he is showing us that the, that the, the one who is this priest is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the one who is this priest because of where he comes from in terms of his tribe, but also because of what he does, how he serves. He shows himself to be a priest in the, that has come in the likeness of Melchizedek. And the one detail that he really points to with regard to what Christ does is that he is the one who serves according to the power of indestructible life. Melchizedek, having no record of his genealogy, no record of his beginning and end, was pointing forward to the one priest who would truly serve God's people forever. And so there are these two things, these two things that we have in this text. We have who he is, the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything about who he is identifies him as this priest after the order of Melchizedek. He had to be from this, this particular tribe. Uh, and, even, and even this is helpful for us to understand then, um, you know, <clears throat> perhaps some would have tried to mark it as a, a mark against the Lord Jesus Christ as he is to serve as a priest and yet is not from the tribe of Levi. However, the, the point that the author is going to make here is that he has to be from a different tribe. If he was from a tr the tribe of Levi, it would actually disqualify him. And this is from Psalm 110 verse 4. He is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And even there are other Old Testament passages that say the same thing. You think of uh, Zechariah 6, where there's a description of the Davidic son, the one whose name is Branch, who will build the house of the Lord. He will be the king as David's son, and yet also he will be a priest reigning on his throne, which means then that the Old Testament expectation is that the great priest who would be the Messiah, who would also be the everlasting king, who would build the house of the Lord, that this one would be from the tribe of Judah and not Levi. And so this is the description. We are, we are told how to identify the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we are told what he does. He serves according to the power of, the in, of indestructible life. If he is to be the one who will grant eternal life to his people, he himself must be able to serve as the everlasting priest. And the Lord Jesus Christ, the point of this text is to say that this priest is Jesus. This priest is Jesus. He is the one who is these things, and he is the one who has done these things for the sake of his people. And because this is Jesus, there can be no other way of salvation. The only way of salvation is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we'll look at this, this passage under two headings. We'll take the beginning and the end of the text together. So verses 11 and 12 and verses 18 and 19 together, where there is a description of the necessity for a new priesthood. Why it is the case that there must be a new priesthood, that is a non-Levitical priesthood. Then we'll look at <coughs> verses 13 to 17, where the author shows that the new priest is Christ. So there must be a new priesthood. Christ is the new priest. There must be a new priesthood. Christ is the new priest, the one who serves after the order of Melchizedek. So look with me then again at verses 11 and 12, and then verses 18 and 19, where we see that the, that the first thing that, that the author does is he begins to apply the, the points that he's made about the superiority of Melchizedek in verses 1 to 10 to identifying Christ as the priest after the order of Melchizedek. The first thing he does is to say that there is a necessity for a new priesthood. There is necessity for a new priesthood. And this is given uh, particularly then right at the beginning in verse 11. The point is, is that if there were perfection, 
in the, in the Levitical priesthood, if, if the Levitical priest could give everything that was promised in the scriptures, then there would be no need for another priest. However, if they can't give everything that's needed, then of course there must be another priest. Now, one of the things, uh, one of the ways in which, <coughs> one of the ways in which the Old Testament uh, will often point to the Lord Jesus Christ is by showing the, the weakness of God's uh, people, not just the people, but all of the institutions, all of the leaders, in all the events, there are prophecies about the significance of every leader, of every event, of every institution, and yet they all fall short. And the falling short is meant in itself to teach us that we are to expect more. And so, for instance, Moses delivers the people of God and yet can't bring them into the land. Joshua brings them in, but can't drive out all the nations. The land is secured finally under David. The land's at rest, and yet he can't build the temple. Solomon builds the temple, but he's unable to establish an everlasting kingdom as it's ripped away from his son. Josiah and Hezekiah bring about a revival after the kingdom declines for hundreds of years, but it's short-lived, and then the exile still happens. The return from exile under Zerubbabel happens, but the spirit is not given, and the temple is less than what the prophets had predicted. In all these cases, all these examples, the point is, is that there is to be a deliverance, but it has to be more than Moses. We will have rest in the land, but it's got to be more than Joshua. There will be a place where we'll dwell with God, but it has to be more than the temple. There has to be an everlasting kingdom, but it can't be Solomon's. It can't be because all of those things fell short. There was weakness in all of them. And so the prophets speak of the perfection of all these things. We are to anticipate perfection in all of these areas. And yet we see that it was never given in the Old Testament. And the same is true even of events. You think of not just the, the leaders of God's people, but there was uh, the exodus out of Egypt, but that's followed by the wilderness. There was the return from exile, but again, the spirit that is not given. And here... Here especially, the emphasis falls on the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system was meant to point to the great blessing of being brought into the presence of God. That's the whole point of the sacrifices. You, you, you offer a sacrifice, you have fellowship with God. The end goal is the fellowship offering wherein you share a meal with God. However, there was always a separation from God. And that separation was never removed. And the whole point, the whole point of that remaining separation is to make it clear that there must be more. There, there was a weakness. And that weakness implies that there must at some point be a change of priesthood. The priesthood of the Old Testament could never give the things which are promised. You think of even the way in which the temple and the tabernacle were meant to be this picture of returning back to God. Everything in the temple and tabernacle was pointing to, uh, was a reminder of Eden. Uh, everything was to represent creation. The point was is that the theology of the temple and the tabernacle is that it's to teach us how we as creation can be renewed and come into the presence of God. And beyond the veil is the presence of God. The, the, the glory cloud descends. The fire uh, is there. That's where the, the presence of God is. And yet the Levitical priests are unable to grant access to God for anyone. They're unable to do it for anyone. The theology whereby that access is pictured is clear. And yet there is a weakness. And therefore, 
if there was perfection, if they could really do the thing that the prophets say will eventually be done, where we'll be in God's presence, if they could do that, then there would be no need for another priesthood. But what the author of the Hebrews is saying is, clearly there was weakness. And if there is weakness, then there must, in fact, be another priest. That's the point. There must be another priest. Why is it then? Why is it then that Psalm 110 verse 4 says that the Messiah must belong to another priesthood? The answer is the Levitical priesthood could not grant access to God. It could not grant access to God. And this is in fact the point that's being made in verses 18 and 19. <coughs> Where the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ brings about two implications. First, there is the removal of the Levitical priesthood. It's, it's no longer going to, to have any significance. The reason is because it was weak. It was unprofitable. And as it says, as the author says in verse 19, the law made nothing perfect. So on the one hand, the coming of the Lord Jesus means the removal of this weak thing. But on the other hand, the coming of the Lord Jesus means that there is a, the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. The hope by which we are able to have the thing that the priests should have been able to grant, but were unable to, which is access to God. We are able to draw near to God in the better hope of the priests after the order of Melchizedek, which necess necessarily means the doing away of the Levitical priesthood. That's the point that the author is making. Now, brothers and sisters, think about what a wonderful thing this is. What a wonderful blessing that you have access to God. That all of these things, that we think about all these weaknesses and all these various ways that the Old Testament will describe the thing that we are going to have, all the blessings, and yet always record the weakness whereby the people of God failed to attain them. And then to think, all of these blessings are yours in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who has won every single one of them for you. And the emphasis of the one here is that you can come into the presence of the thrice holy God, the one before whom even the angels hide their faces. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, you have access to him. The one who the scriptures say is of purer eyes than to look upon any evil. You who are yet full of sin are able to come into his presence having been washed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have fellowship with the triune God. Think of this, brothers and sisters, what could possibly be better? As you think about uh, any struggle that you're going through, any trial in this world, what could be a better comfort than to know that you have access to God? And even more than that, that your, your access to God has been so perfectly won for you that it can only increase over time. And on the last day, you will see the Lord Jesus Christ with your very own eyes. This is the blessing that is yours in Christ. What, what better source of joy could there be for you? What, what better benefit could you possibly receive from any priest in this world? This is the benefit that you have through the Lord Jesus Christ who serves after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, you, you, you think about in terms of fellowship, in terms of beholding the glory of one. You, uh, if, you, if you think about going to some beautiful place in this world or in this country, and you think about beholding a beautiful sight, you think about how it fills your heart with joy and wonder. And then to think even further, that all of these things point to the glory of God, but are separate from it. 
that God's glory far surpasses all of it and that you will have fellowship. You have access to the one who is infinitely glorious upon whom even just gazing even for a second is going to fill your heart with such joy and such wonder that there will be nothing in all of creation that could ever bring any kind of sadness to you. This is the kind of fellowship that you will have on the last day. And it's the fellowship that has been won for you through the one who is the true priest, through the one who is not a priest who serves according to the Levitical priesthood in weakness that simply pointed forward to the realities to be fulfilled by another, but the one who has accomplished it for you, who is in fact the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is, this is what Christ has come to do. And it is the reason why there had to be a new priesthood. There had to be a change of priest. Now notice as well, there's an implication drawn in verse 12 with regard to this, that if there is a priesthood that's changed, there is of necessity also a change of the law. The priesthood and the law go together. The law was given in conjunction with the priesthood. And uh, what, so what the author is saying here is this is the reason why there are many mosaic institutions that are done away with with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the author is not speaking of the moral law. <coughs> the moral law was actually given separately from the Levitical priesthood. The moral law was written on our hearts, written on the heart of Adam from creation. You know, the Sabbath was instituted in Genesis chapter 2, not in Exodus chapter 20. There is a, clearly a prohibition against murder, Cain and Abel. Uh, they, would have, they knew that that was wrong. Uh, God condemned them for it. So that the, the moral law is not the law that's being spoken of here, but rather what's being spoken of here is the mosaic institution with regard to the sacrifices. All the laws about clean and unclean, uh, holy and unholy, those kinds of distinctions, <coughs> holy, <coughs> holy and common, uh, all the different sacrifices, the different methods of approach, the, different, uh, the, the uh, different laws with regard to washings, all of this is done away with with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ because that law was tied to the old priesthood. And it is imperfect just as the priesthood was, in fact, in uh, imperfect. If there is a new priesthood, then the old system of sacrifices could not be maintained. There must be a new law based on the new priesthood. And this, brothers and sisters, is one of the reasons why we do not celebrate any of the Mosaic institutions today. We have a great respect for the, the Pentateuch. We have great respect for the writings of Moses. As you know, I, I preached quite a number of sermons on Deuteronomy. We, we love the Pentateuch. We believe all of the theology that's set forth in all those institutions, but we do not do any of them. And the reason is because the Lord Jesus Christ has come and therefore that old priesthood is done away with. It's gone. It's no longer uh, to be maintained at all. And, and if we were to say that we are going to continue to do these things, like if we were to say we want to continue to celebrate the Passover, what we would be denying is not only the new law, but also the new priest. And that is the point. Those things must go away because they are tied to the priesthood which could not give you the blessing that the Lord Jesus Christ himself gives. And this is, this is the problem with those, with those who will say that they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ but want to continue to make use of uh, all the Old Testament sacrifices or all the Old Testament laws. The point is that it does not recognize that there is something new that's happened with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he has done what those things could not in fact do. And it's necessary to make the change for the sake of maintaining our faith in the one who has in fact granted the reality to which these other things pointed. And so the author says, 
bookending this text, there must be a new priesthood. There must be a new priesthood. The point of verses 13 to 17 is to say Jesus Christ is that priest. Jesus Christ is, in fact, that priest. So the point of verse 13 in particular uh, is to say that, uh, as I mentioned uh, at the beginning, that the implication of all these arguments with regard to the weakness of the Levitical priesthood is, is that the, the Messiah must be a priest, but he cannot be from the tribe of Levi. It's not points against him that he's not from the tribe of Levi. It's actually the case that he cannot be from the tribe of Levi. He cannot serve as a Levitical priest. And so this is mentioned in verse, uh, in verse 13. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. There, there must be a man serving from another tribe. And then in verses 14 to 17, the author goes on to identify the Lord Jesus Christ as just this person. He says, first, <coughs> it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah. He arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. So that is, he must come from a different tribe. Now he's saying, look, the Lord Jesus Christ has arisen from the tribe of Judah. He's not from the tribe of Levi. He is serving, if he is a priest, he is serving as one who is a priest not according to Mosaic origins, not according to the Levitical priesthood. He must be serving in another way. And then secondly, then in verse 15, the author goes even further. And there's a, there's a, a building in terms, of the, uh, in terms of the language. Verse 14, it is evident. Verse 15, it is yet even more evident. If there is one who serves the priest, not from the tribe of Levi, but rather from the tribe of Judah, who yet does serve in the likeness of Melchizedek. So if there is another priest who comes who's not a Levitical priest and he serves in the likeness of Melchizedek, then clearly the one who does these things is in fact the, the fulfillment of what the psalmist speaks of in Psalm 110 verse 4. He must be the priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so verse 15, it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, the Mosaic commandment, but according to the power of an endless life, according to the power of an indestructible life. The point is, is that the Lord Jesus Christ has fulfilled uh, these things. Now notice, the primary thing that's emphasized about the Lord Jesus Christ, how he is like Melchizedek, is that he serves forever. He serves forever. He is not risen according to a law of a fleshly commandment. The, the point of calling the, the commandment fleshly is simply to say that it's not animated by the Spirit. It doesn't come by the Holy Spirit. The law was given through Moses, but when the law was given through Moses, the Spirit was not given so as to be able to change the heart to obey the law. And so there was a fleshly commandment that, gave, that was given by uh, Moses, but there was not the reality that could, in fact, pierce the heart. Christ, however, has come as the priest who serves according to the power of indestructible life. And you think, brothers and sisters, about how this actually played out. Death could not conquer him. He died, and yet now he lives forevermore. And thus he is able to serve as our priest forever. There is nothing and no one who can remove him from office. There's no one who can prevent him from fulfilling his priesthood. And this is, this is the point that the author is saying. This is clearly what the text speaks of in Psalm 110 verse 4 about the order of Melchizedek. 
he must be from another tribe. And virtually the only thing said about him serving in the order of Melchizedek is that he will serve forever as priest. He will serve forever as priest. And then in verse 16, we have here this description of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he really does serve according to the power of indestructible life. The, 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 <coughs> the author then quotes from Psalm 110, verse 4, to make this very, this, this very point, where he says, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Uh, the point is that the author shows that the expectation is if you are going to find the one who is the priest after the order of Melchizedek, you must find someone who will remain forever. Now, this is another example of the way in which the book of Hebrews uh, will quote a passage of scripture, point out a particular exegetical detail, and then expound on it. And by doing so, it's actually teaching us how to read the Bible, how to read the Old Testament. And so what's happening here is that the author is looking at Psalm 110 verse 4, and he's noting that the language of the text is to say that he is a priest forever. That detail forever means that he can never die. And therefore, the priest, when you find that priest, he must be one who is going to be able to serve forever in one way or another. He must himself have already acquired uh, everlasting life. He must have uh, eternal life in this regard. And this is one of the ways, again, brothers and sisters, that we can be helped in terms of our own reading of the Old Testament. Uh, you know, there are, there are even some commentators today who will deny that even Psalm 110 is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. But, but think, there are many places where there are predictions of a particular single individual who will be able to give some blessing that lasts into all eternity. That has to be more than any earthly person. It, of course, cannot be Hezekiah or David or anyone else. It, of course, must be speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You are a priest forever. You think of in 2 Samuel 7, something similar happens where, where uh, the prophecy says that, that one coming from the seed of David will have an everlasting kingdom. One person will have an everlasting kingdom. That means he must be living forever. He must uh, continue forever as as the great King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so the, what is the significance then of this description? The significance is, is that Jesus Christ is clearly the priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's not from the tribe of Levi and he does serve according to the power of indestructible life. This was proved by his resurrection from the dead. By his resurrection from the dead, he is the one who now serves forever. Now, just to fill in further the reason why this is significant. If you remember, a couple of months ago when we were looking at Hebrews chapter 5, one of the things that we noted was that every person in this world needs a priest. The reason you need a priest is because you are separated from God by your sins. There must be a way of access to God. And the Old Testament, being the Word of God, gives instructions and points things out about how a person can come into the presence of God. That was the point of the Levitical priests. Even though they could not grant that access, it gave true information about how that access could be obtained. It could only be through sacrifice and the sacrifice offered by a priest, a priest who was acceptable to God. The sacrifice had to be acceptable to God. It had to be a blood sacrifice. All these things showed us how we could in fact have access to God. Now, since the Old Testament spoke about how we could have access to God, one of the implications of this must be that even in the Old Testament, there was no other way of salvation. 
the only people who had the true knowledge of how to approach God were the Jews, the only ones, the Israelites. They were the only ones who had this information. You think of, of even um, some of, the, of the, the pagan stories around Israel, the ancient Near Eastern stories, one of them in particular that's very famous is the, is the Gilgamesh story, where uh, Gilgamesh goes on a journey to find eternal life, but in the end, he's unsuccessful. The, they, he's denied eternal life, even though he's uh, basically half God, and uh, he's basically told that, you know, make a name for yourself and then die, and that's it. Uh, there is no other knowledge about how to acquire eternal life. There is no other knowledge about how to get into the presence of God. The Old Testament was the only, uh, had the only information with regard to these things. The point is, is that the only way you could ever enter the presence of God was by having the access that was spoken of in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament itself has true information about this and points to a single person who would grant this particular access. And the important thing that the author of the Hebrews wants you to understand is that this person is the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other method of salvation. There is no other way that you can approach God. And this is really the great tragedy of Judaism, even down to this day. Judaism, modern Judaism being uh, the, the uh, theological grandchild of a uh, child of, Phar of uh, Phariseeism. The, 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 uh, the Jewish faith that today receives the Old Testament, receives this witness, receives even the description of what the Messiah would be like, what he would do, who he would be, and yet is unable to identify the Lord Jesus Christ as that priest. This is why this is so important. This is why the New Testament speaks so much about this. It's not just about knowing what the Messiah would do. It's about being able to see that Jesus is that Messiah. Jesus is that Christ. He is that priest and there is no other. And so the question to, to ask to anyone who, has, who would receive the testimony of the Old Testament but yet not receive the Lord Jesus Christ is to ask, what of all the things prophesied was not accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ? What of all of them? The everlasting kingdom has been brought in. The spirit's been poured out. The new creation has begun. The resurrection of the dead has come. Access to God has been granted. The Gentiles have been called. The house of God is being built. All of these things are happening. And they have happened through the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that was spoken of by the prophets has in fact come to pass in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if this is the case, it means that there is no other way of salvation except through him. As the Lord Jesus Christ says of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The Old Testament speaks of Christ on its own terms. The New Testament says the Old Testament speaks of Christ as well, identifies him as the Messiah. Now, this is even further significant as we think about the identification of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we consider the reality of death, that there is the universal nature of our exile from God, which is seen in the universal bondage to death. And so if you were to ask what is needed in this situation where everything is confined over to death, everything is given over to death, the thing that is needed is a priest who can identify with you in your death and yet serve as priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That is to say, one who would die and then one who would be brought back to life, who would come to life again in the resurrection of the dead 
in order to serve according to the power of indestructible life. You need the priest who died and who was raised again. That is to say, you need the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the priest after the order of Melchizedek. And brothers and sisters, such is the high priest that we have. Such is the high priest that we have. Think again about the beauty of the scriptures in terms of if you take a step back and look at the way the scriptures as a whole describe the Lord Jesus Christ and point to him. The scriptures describe what's necessary for us to be saved. It describes what the Messiah would do, how to know that the Messiah is in fact the Messiah and that he's come. The, it gives us the record of his coming. It gives us the explanation of his coming to show that he really did meet all the requirements. Everything you could possibly need is given to you in the scriptures to show beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Lord Jesus Christ really is the Christ, that he really is the priest after the order of Melchizedek. What more could you ask for? All these things are given in order that your faith might be strengthened, that you might be assured that you really are serving the one, the only one who can give you access to God. And consider even brothers and sisters, the grace of God in this, that he would so painstakingly show you point by point everything that you would need to identify Christ as the Christ. It's, it's just so that you can be assured all the more of the reality of the things that you believe in. You think of, of even weeks ago, a couple months ago, when we were looking at the end of Hebrews chapter 6, where the author speaks about the, the promise confirmed by the oath. Why give the oath, the oath if the promise is enough? The answer is it's simply for your benefit simply for your benefit, that God might show his grace towards you, that your faith might rest on a sure foundation. This is the reason why all these things are done. <coughs> and the sum total of it all is this, that Christ really is the true Messiah. This is made plain in the word that you might believe. May it be that God would grant you the grace to stand on this testimony firm to the end, that you might find the end of your exile in him, that you might have true fellowship with God and in the end have eternal life. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we do thank you for your word. <coughs> how we do thank you for the testimony that it gives to your, to your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. How we do thank you, Lord, that your word goes even further than simply prophesying of Christ and then recording that he is, in fact, that he did in fact come, but it goes even further to give us the explanation of how we are to connect the dots, how we are to know that the one who came really is the Lord Jesus Christ, teaching us how we are to see the Lord Jesus Christ is fulfilling all these prophecies. Lord, what a wonderful thing. Uh, we are so thankful for your grace. We do ask you for your forgiveness as we consider the slowness of our minds. Lord, we, we see that we are slow of heart to believe the things that are written of you in the scriptures. And it is for this reason that we need even this, this very slow step-by-step -step instruction. Lord, we are so thankful that you have condescended to us in our weakness, and that you have provided everything that we need for the sake of the establishing of our faith, that we might, be, have, that we might have full assurance of the things that we have set our hope on. For we ask this in the, we, we pray, Lord, that you would make this even more clear to us. Uh, and we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.
Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. If you've benefited from this ministry and want to know of ways you can help or support it, we'd like to make you aware of our new capital campaign to build a new building. God has recently blessed us with growth here at New Covenant. Over the years, our church has been small. It's gone up and down, but overall things have been tight financially and the church has been small. Now, by the grace of God, we are growing. We believe it wise in light of this to think about building a new building to facilitate even more growth. Our current building only seats 72. We cannot fit any more seats, and if we were to fill every single one, every Lord's Day, we would have no more than 72. The plans for our new building would more than double the capacity and enable us to grow to a point where we can be stable financially and even be able to help other churches. One of the things that we want to, to be is a church that is able to look beyond itself for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom of God. We believe that this new building can help us get there. And so we are praying that God would provide for us the funds needed to build a new building, that we would grow to fill it, and that one day we would even be able to plant a church ourselves. As you know, doing ministry here in the Bay Area, this is a very dark place. Uh, there is a great need for the light of the gospel to shine, particularly in this place through the preaching of the word. And so if you want to support us and to, to support our efforts to see this new building built, please consider giving a financial gift to this end. You can give by sending us a check with building fund in the memo line. Our address can be found on our website. You can also give by Zelle by sending the money to nc.opcssf.treasurer at gmail.com with building fund in the memo line. May God bless you with a greater knowledge of his word and zeal for his name.